0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great weekend, and I hope you got a chance to watch the podcast that I posted yesterday with Cyprian. Um, It was a continuation of our series of discussions about basically the effects of stress and trauma on Sea Org members, Scientologists in general, at the public staff and Sea Org level, but we really concentrate a lot on life in the Sea Org and life as a manager, or life, you know, what my life was like working in Scientology management and uh, and in a very, very high control Sea Org environment and just how crazy it can get. And of course, we do a lot of compare and contrast with real world uh, stress and the similarities and differences between a high control group and and, you know, life in, say, the military or in certain professions or corporate America, this kind of thing. So I hope you guys will check that out. It's a pretty interesting series of discussions and I'm I'm pretty happy with that with that series of podcasts that we did. Cyprian brings up some really great points and uh and really helps me to elaborate on and bring out you know the 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 details of that experience. So uh, that is there for you guys and of course I want to always put in a plug for the little community that we are creating in the critical conversation show. We do a live show every Friday or almost every Friday and um, we have a lot of fun with that show. I think last night we did actually one of our one of our better shows uh, talking. Uh, you know about uh, friendships and relationships and cults, and um, and the show is a real chance for me to be joined by my wife, let my hair down, and talk with you guys directly because we have a we do call in. So anyway, I hope you guys will be able to check that out on Fridays because I would really love to build the audience of people watching that show and participating with us in um, our weekly discussions of of the week of news of. Of topics of interest, we're really kind of interestingly all over the place in that show, but we we'll almost always have the best time, and it's just a, a, a real hour of fun and and lively discussion. So, I hope you guys will uh, consider joining us uh, live on Fridays. Uh, that's at six o'clock Mountain Time, Denver Time here on Friday nights. All right. So, with those plugs in place, let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions this week. Steve Wood. Apparently a pre-clear is someone who was clear in a past life, or maybe you call that a past life clear. But either way, this would suggest that these people were clear prior to the invention of Dianetics in Scientology. And if that is correct, how can this be? Because if Scientology has not yet been written, how could you be part of something that did not yet exist? Thank you for this question, Steve. I completely get your question, your concern about this. It is confusing. What is up with this? What are we talking about? So let's clarify some terminology in Scientology. Um Pre-clear is the term that is used for anyone who has not yet achieved the state of clear. And it's a this lifetime kind of label. So if you're a pre-clear in Scientology, it just means you're somebody who is getting auditing and is not yet clear. And that term tends to bleed over even when you get onto the OT levels because pre-OT isn't as popular. It never really uh, grabbed or or glommed on as easily as pre-clear did. So you will hear the word pre-clear used to refer to people who are getting auditing even on the OT levels, but that's really technically incorrect. You should call people who are auditing on the, on the OT levels, you would call them pre-OTs. Has nothing to do with past life status of any kind. It's a, it's a this lifetime thing. You are not yet clear. Then you get clear. Now you are a clear, which means that you are a person who no longer has his own reactive mind. That's the definition in Scientology of a of a clear. So you have this this, this subconscious you know uh, mechanism in your mind called the reactive mind. It's a it's a it's a unit or part of uh, Hubbard's theory of of how the mind is put together. And uh, the, the whole idea with getting to the state of clear is that you are deconstructing and disassembling this reactive mind and, and literally erasing it, making it go away and no longer exist. And so it no longer will be this the, these subconscious impulses and ideas and, and uh, commands that the reactive mind gives you will no longer be uh, plaguing you or, or harming you or... or uh, giving you a hard time in life. So um, so that's the idea with going clear. Now, in terms of past life clears, okay, yeah, they are called past life clears. They're not called pre-clears. And, uh, or past life OTs, because it's possible that you could have somebody who was a past life OT. But you're asking about clears prior to the uh, creation of Dianetics. Dianetics is a book that was written in 1950, it was published on May 9, 1950, Hubbard claimed that there were people that he audited prior to 1950 when he was doing his research. And he uh, claimed to have done research in Savannah, Georgia, in Hollywood, California, and in uh, Bayhead, New Jersey, which is where he actually wrote the book. So, um, so he purported to have case studies. These case studies were one page wonders. They were nothing. They were really they when you do a case study in science, as in social sciences, at least these days, according to how I see it done, it is a detailed, very, um, very uh, strict, I mean, there's kind of there's formatting to it. There's a way you do it. you, you there's a lot of documentation that you're going to be doing. You have to put together all the notes, all the research, all the work you did with the person. There has to be extensive documentation of this, uh, but written, recorded, however you do it, so that somebody else can come along and look at the work that you did and validate or verify that what happened is a result of the work that you did, and and the results that you got, that's the whole point of documenting things in science. And Hubbard's case studies are, you know, a paragraph, a, a, couple, a couple paragraphs per person. There's nothing there. You know, he could have dashed all that off on a Sunday afternoon while he was drinking vodka or whiskey or something. And truth be told, he probably did do it that way. Uh, they're probably completely made up. So, um, so his research trail is this pathetic series of notes, and no one has any other access to any of the other research or information from that time. It's all whatever exists is locked up safely away in the L. Ron Hubbard archives up at the uh, Ant Management Gold Base area. So, no one can replicate Hubbard's results because no one didn't even knows what Hubbard did. Um, you know, there are claims that Hubbard was engaged in just straight hypnotism. That's what John Atac has told me, is that prior to um, the publication of Dianetics in 1950, Hubbard was just hypnotizing people straight up. And he changed the entire procedure when he wrote the book. And then, what the, and then the book comes out with this, you know, sit there and work with another person and, and this co-auditing kind of concept where I audit you, you audit me. It's cooperative auditing. That whole thing was an invention. When he wrote the book, none of the stuff he had done prior to that actually looked like that. That's fascinating in itself. Um, but regardless, Hubbard did work with people prior to 1950. That that there was some people that that happened with apparently, or at least he claimed to. So those people could potentially have. You know, let's say he worked with somebody who was 50 years old in 1947, and uh, by 1960, you know, they die. And they and, and Hubbard worked with them, and they went clear according to O. Ron Hubbard's ideas and standards of what clear is. Apparently, he says he was clearing people prior to, you know, to 1950 with the Dianetics process. Um so then they come back, they get a new life, and they, you know, they they get a new body in 1960, let's say, and by the, you know, 1975, 1980, they're 20 years old, and they are they come across Dianetics, and they could potentially show up and present themselves as a past life clear, right? Or in the process of getting some auditing, they could recall that Hubbard did this with them in the past life, and, and he audited them to clear. Uh, And they are now clear, right? And they could have a a legit claim to be a past life clear prior to Dianetics even existing. That was something that Hubbard described as a possibility. Everything I'm telling you here is what Hubbard said. So so that's how it's possible that there were clears prior to the, the, the publication of Dianetics. And of course, after Dianetics was published, people were audited with Dianetics and they could show up you know, and say that they were uh, audited, you know, in a a past life during that time period. The interesting thing that kind of got you with this that I want to point out is that later research on Hubbard's part clearly and definitively stated that you cannot go clear without an e-meter. There were at least two places I know, a, a technical training film and um, and in writing, in bulletins, where Hubbard explicitly said that you cannot validate or get a person through the the full um, barriers or the 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 things that need to, the requirements that are necessary in order to to achieve and validate the state of clear as a real thing. Absolutely requires an e meter. So, I'd like to know how it is that L. Ron Hubbard was auditing people on simpleton processes, on, on basic, you know, uh, Dianetics procedure prior to 1950, before it was all refined and worked over, and before there was new era standard Dianetics and then new era Dianetics and using the e meter with Dianetics. Prior to all of that, which is 1960s and 1970s, how is it that Hubbard is saying that you have to have an e-meter in order to do that, but then claims that he and other people were actually able to make clears earlier? That is the actual contradiction in the materials and in Hubbard's claims that no one ever discusses or talks about or mentions when it comes to past life clears both in and out of Scientology, I have never seen anybody address this point. And it is a gotcha because L. Ron Hubbard was crystal clear about that. So he completely contradicts himself, completely makes himself out to look like a total idiot on the subject of making clears by saying that he made clears in the early days before he even really knew what he was doing. And yet later on says, nope, can't make clears without an meter; It's impossible. So... Which one's true? And this is this is probably one of the best examples of one of these little hidden gems, one of these little hidden contradictions in the body of the work of Scientology that no one just, just no one deals with. And you just have to resolve it in your head somehow and, and make it make sense to you and move on. And, uh, and that's the Scientology experience for you. So uh, that's the answer. And I hope that was interesting. Adria Vici-Haloub. In a podcast with Cyprian recently, it was said, the concept of science was so badly damaged by communism that a whole lot of people fled to pseudoscience. Do you think this statement is applicable to the anti-vax and COVID-denying people in the USA? If so, could you please elaborate on that point? Absolutely. Thank you, Adria, for this question. It's a great one. And And it's totally on point. We have a active campaign, a disinformation campaign that is anti-science, and this campaign has been going on for a very long time in the United States. I will, I will stretch it back to the 1980s. I think it goes, you know, obviously you can find strains of anti-intellectualism and anti-science all, you know, through all of history, all going all the way back as far as, as the word science, you know, has been used. Um, but there's, but th- this campaign I'm talking about is is not a, a single effort. It's not one person or some you know weird conspiracy. It is simply a, a, a an effort on the part of religious groups, of uh, political groups, I, other ideological groups, cults, um, schools. You know this this is this has shown up in academia in places. That lots and lots of different movements for lots and lots of different reasons push back against science. And they do so because they don't like what science has to say. And science is a broad umbrella term, obviously. Science is everything from engineering to biology to botany to, um, you know, uh, uh, chemistry to, you know, there's it's a wide range of things, all the way through the social sciences, which includes psychology, psychiatry, etc. So You know, the humanities, you have anthropology, archaeology, ethnography, um, tons and tons of of fields that fall under this umbrella of science. And really, all this means is that these are uh, fields of endeavor, fields of of information and educational pursuit that are are engaging in a disciplined, rigorous, step-by-step process To to find or discover what is or isn't true in the world, what works, what doesn't. How do things operate? That's what science is all about. It is a process that sometimes is error-ridden. People make mistakes. People can make an infinite variety of mistakes in executing the process of science, and that's just human fallibility and it's and it's absolutely predictable it's absolutely something you can count on mistakes will be made big mistakes little mistakes and they happen every single day and these mistakes are used to invalidate that science to say that that science the process itself is basically flawed people don't know what they're doing look at this look at this conclusion people came to 5 10 20 50 years ago that's obviously flawed because we've discovered new information look at how wrong they were look at how bad science got it and of course this is all just wrong bullshit thinking because this is they're taking a feature of science and twisting it and corrupting it into a bug they're making it out that science is somehow flawed because the data changes. And the data, of course, is supposed to change. They're, you're supposed to learn new things that invalidate old things. That's the process of discovery. That's what you expect to see. That's what you should see. So to make it out that that's somehow a flaw or broken system, is to demonstrate that, that people who make that claim, who say that about science, are demonstrating very loudly and very proudly that they're idiots, that they have no clue what science is actually about. And they do so because they have motivated reasoning to do so. They are motivated to reason out that science is bad, almost universally because they have some belief, some faith-based idea, whether it's an academic faith-based idea or a God-faith-based idea or a cult-faith-based idea or some pseudoscience faith-based idea, across all the spectrums of all of these fields, there is motivated reasoning that my pseudoscience, my faith, my idea is superior to and senior to any of your science nonsense. Don't talk to me about facts. Don't talk to me about observation. Don't talk to me about evidence. My idea is right, and nothing you say or do will convince me otherwise. And this is how anti-science happens. It's because people's egos are too strong for their common sense and for their ability to simply observe the obvious of what's right in front of their face. Science is not cryptic, science is not hard, science isn't really at the, at the, at the fundamental root of it, science is not difficult or hard to understand there is a lot in science that is very complicated that is very hard to understand but the process itself is 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 very very simple we teach it to fourth graders you know the scientific method it's not difficult or hard to understand but it's also not hard to understand why people push back against it because of their egos and because of their vested interests because of financial gain this is a big 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 thing that pushes that is to work as to a reason why People push back against science is because they are financially motivated as well as the faith-based uh, nonsense. So you've got a lot of reasons why people, you know, feel that science is somehow threatening to them, is somehow threatening to their worldview, or is somehow threatening to their afterlife, to their to their their picture or their idea of what's supposed to happen with them after they die. That's the faith-based stuff. So. Lots and lots of very easy to understand reasons why people push back against this. And when it comes to COVID and vaccines, of course, you have this small percentage of people in the, in the United States and around the world who insist that their rights are more important than anything else, including public safety and health and, and things like that. They'd rather see a whole bunch of people die than they be inconvenienced in any way, or they'd rather watch a whole lot of people die than to give over to the idea that somebody else could be right and they're wrong. There are some people who simply cannot go there. They cannot be wrong. They take a position and they sink into it and they will not move. And that's cults. That's extremism, right? That's radicalized people. I mean, this is what we talk about all the time on this channel is this class of people. And um, we know that there is something basically and fundamentally wrong with someone who will not budge, no matter what you say or do, on a topic like like science. You know, um, we're not talking here about, you know, okay, give over your first kid and we're going to keep working you over until you give over for your first kid so we can kill him. You know, sacrifice your first kid, sacrifice your first kid. That would be something you should be immovable on. That's something you should not change your mind about, Right. Uh, n- nobody has the right to, you know, go kill your kid. But when it comes to getting vaccinated, <laughs> right? when it comes to public safety discourse, when it comes to, you know, the 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 whole concept of of the social contract and rights and liberties and responsibilities, man, you know, we can clearly see at this point that there's a small percentage of people. I think it's about fourteen percent, according to uh, certain sources I've seen and cited in the past about 14% of Americans, uh maybe worldwide, are just intractable, just not going to move, not going to budge. It's their way and that's it. And they're just not willing to consider that anybody else has anything important enough to for them to even bother listening to. And um and with such people, you simply have to move them out of the way. They are they become their own problem. And uh and so somehow or another, that has to be dealt with. And I don't suggest, by the way, that, you know, that the government has the right to come in and, and forcefully vaccinate people. If you, you, know, you do have bodily autonomy, and no one has the right to tell you what you can or can't put in your body. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. But then don't pretend you're part of healthy society and that you have the right to just intermingle with everybody else and make them sick and potentially kill them. You don't have that right. And you never did. And that's the whole point of civil rights. So, you know, this, the rights argument is actually completely twisted and corrupted around and is itself a corruption of um, the, the, the reality of what, of what rights are for. So anyway, I'm getting into the rights argument rather than the science thing, but I'm just kind of going on a roll about all this because it's the arguments about all of this are just are just kindergarten silly and they are uh, coming out of, you know, kindergarten level thinking because it's people who are so riled up about their rightness and about their truth and their integrity that they sound like a bunch of Scientologists, you know, what's true for me is true and that's how it is. And there isn't anything you or anybody else is going to say that's going to change my mind. You just go, okay, you go stand over there and we're going to put, you know, some walls around and, and you are going to be perfectly happy uh, with you and your crowd can go can go live over there sequestered safely away from the rest of us so that we don't have to be endangered by you. Because that's kind of really how it is, and these people are so selfish and so egotistical that they just can't even conceive of anything outside of themselves. So that's that's kind of what's going on there with that. Now, that all being said, I hope I'm under. I hope I wanna I wanna say out loud, and and I, I you know I've probably already pissed a whole bunch of people off with this, but I'm gonna say really really clearly now that I'm not talking about people who have medical reasons to not get vaccinated. You know, I'm talking about the anti-science crowd. If you acknowledge that vaccines are wonderful and great, but you can't take them because you have pre-existing conditions, immunocompromised, you know, uh, body, you know, your doctors have told you don't get vaccinated. That's a whole different class of person. None of what I just said applies in any way to that class of people. So I hope we're clear on who I'm talking about here, because I'm not talking about every single person who isn't vaccinated. You know, that's just not, that's not the case. And if you're hearing that, that from me, then you're not listening to what I'm saying. So I want to be clear that I'm talking about the people who this question asks about, anti-science, anti-COVID, anti-vax, they think it's all a hoax, that class of delusional people are are a, are a threat to the public health and safety of everybody else. That's what they are. But the people who are you know old or have immunocompromised conditions or or literally medically can't be vaccinated for legit reasons. That's pro science. That's moving. That's using the data it, uh, correctly so that you don't kill yourself by getting vaccinated, right? Because there are some people that that it's a very 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 tiny number of people. But that group of people exists, and they and they actually they they very much are pro science when they are saying, "Hey, look, I'm immunocompromised. I can't do it." That's a whole different condition, okay? So, um, so it's so it's apples and oranges. And I'm and I'm I'm talking very strongly and very kind of insultingly about one group of people here, but I'm not saying those same things about this other group of people. So, I want to be crystal clear about that. Um, That that my, uh, you know, denigrating, insulting words are meant for those who are actively threatening the safety and security of everybody in society. So so there you go. I hope that was clear. Uh, And there you go. Thank you. Oscar Q. Zilch. I was wondering if there was anything in the literature of cultic studies about the use of humor as a tool of exiting a cult. I'm not talking about the mistaken belief that outsiders making fun of cults will somehow cause their adherents to wake up, but rather the way humor can break down authoritarian indoctrination." Okay, Oscar, thank you very much for this question. It's a good one. And yeah, there is literature about the use of humor and laughter. There is humor or laughter therapy uh, that is uh, utilized in in the world of psychology to help people along who are recovering from some, you know, gruesome, PTSD-laden, trauma-laden situation. Humor uh, and laughter can be very, very therapeutic. Um, and I want to point out also that in a in, outside of a therapy paradigm, right, outside of a therapy session, laughter is one of the most cathartic, um, Ways of dealing with life, with the seriousness and tragedy that we encounter in life. Laughter is invaluable. It is a it, it has it serves a number of functions, or or it has it exists for a number of reasons. Um, rejection, surprise, you know, astonishments, you know, shock uh, is mostly what laughter registers, but it registers a. A separation from a thing, an ability to look at it and ridicule it, laugh at it, find humor in it, not be serious about this topic or thing that we, or the, the object of the ridicule or the laughter. And it allows you that separation is really important. It's um, you know it's it's fun. It's I, I'm not trying to make it out to be anything more than what you've already you know experienced with laughter. But you know why is stand up? Why is comedy something that we invest in? Why is it something that we go out of our way to take part in? Why do we tell jokes? You know what do we? What is that all about? It's about breaking up the tragic seriousness and random nonsense of life with a stepping back and stepping out and stepping away from it and just looking at the ridiculousness of the situations we get ourselves involved in uh, or the situations that other people get themselves involved in. And there can be you know, arrogance and conceit and and narcissism and other stuff mixed up with this. So there is a dark side to it, but I'm not talking about that side right now. I'm talking about the brighter, more positive side of laughter and and um, and finding the the ludicrousness of something. And this is why L. Ron Hubbard, for example, made it a crime in Scientology to engage in joking and degrading about Scientology is you can't laugh at Scientology, and you cannot laugh at L. Ron Hubbard, or David Miscavige, for that matter, or any of the Scientology principles. You just can't. You can't find—you're not allowed to separate from them and see the ridiculousness of what they say and do. That Scientology, remember, L. Ron Hubbard said, is a deadly serious activity only the tigers survive, and even they have a hard time, right? We'll survive because we are tiger and we are strong. This is, these are Hubbard's words. So, uh, so Hubbard was crystal clear about the fact that, that, you know, the Scientologists and Scientology are, they're engaged in the most deadly serious activity in the entire universe. There isn't anything more important than what Scientology is doing. And every cult thinks this. Every single one of them think. It's a characteristic of these groups that every one of them individually believes that their group, their activity, their, their their goals are completely deadly, absolutely serious, and they are the most important thing in the universe. There isn't anything else more important than, than achieving their goals. So this is not something that they find funny or humorous or something to laugh at. They take it very seriously. And um, and this is why cult leaders will demand that, that that laughter and ridicule and this kind of thing not is not okay when it comes to their subject matter. They will use this tool to laugh, ridicule um, other groups, other activities. They'll use this to other, you know, people or activities that they don't agree with, but not their own. Absolutely not, right? You cannot. it's, a, it's and this this it's a it can become this sort of double-edged sword because if you start laughing at Scientology, if you start laughing at some of Hubbard's nonsense, once you open that door, it's hard to close it. <laughs> it keeps opening and opening and opening, and you start seeing more and more of the ridiculousness, right? And it's that little that little seed-planting activity that laughter is great for that. Oh, my God, if you can get somebody to laugh at any part of the thing that they are all wrapped up in and very serious about and very, like, taking as their mission in life. If you can get somebody to laugh at that, you have made definite progress in helping them separate a little bit from the topic. And by separate, I mean that the identity of the group member status takes over their own identity. It just it just consumes the person. This is why we call them totalist groups because they just totally they, they totally take over your life. you know, the group is the totality of your life. So so separating from it, it means getting a little bit of space a little bit of ability to look at it and and see it for what it is. So um so this is why it is so so imp- why laughter is so so important and why in any group any situation anywhere i mean you know we have stories out of the holocaust of of people in concentration camps which is the absolute worst environment you could ever possibly be in, you know, if you find yourself in would be a concentration camp in China, in Germany, and, you know, in North Korea, uh, in Guantanamo Bay, if I'm being honest, right? I mean, this exists right here in the United States, um, maybe not on our shores, and that's the point, but we're doing this too as a country, and it's and it, to our national shame. Um, you know, you don't want to be in these places. And if you can, in the middle of that, find the humor in it, find some kind of you know ability to ridicule and laugh at the circumstances you are in, that is literally a little tiny bit of sanity in the middle of chaos and complete uncertainty and insanity. So, um, so it's powerful. It's a powerful thing for for human beings to engage in to find humor and. Um, and you can find literature on this. Yeah, if you go, if you go to Google Scholar and, and, and look some stuff up on this, you'll find, you'll find some studies on this. I, um, I'm not citing any of them here because I didn't, I didn't go do that research for this question. I'm just talking out of my experience from my education on this. So anyway, I hope that answer was helpful. Dr. Robert Tobias. I used to get angry at the Church of Scientology for their illegal, immoral, and unethical behaviors. Now, I am more angry at the American government for its inaction and enabling behavior. Isn't this the same type of government passivity that allowed organized crime to flourish in this country? Hey, Robert, thank you for this question. And yes, it is. um, To be blunt, the government is falling down on the job in, in the United States. And there are some specific places that we can point to as to where they're falling down. We don't need... Well, we do need some new laws, that is for sure. Coercive control laws would be very, very helpful. But those are more directed in the area of domestic violence than they are in cults right now. That can change, and it should. We should get some laws about coercive control here. But in the meantime, we've got laws on the books and regulations such as 501c3, the tax exempt status of any of these cults or groups. And, um, and the, the checklist, the, 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 um, the enforcement of those requirements is grossly, grossly lacking in the United States. The IRS is basically not even on the job as far as uh, enforcement of 501c3 tax exemption requirements. And this is why cults and religions around the United States, both from, from the televangelism world, from the cult world... Are just, are just running rampant over everybody and uh, raking in millions and billions of dollars every year from gullible Americans who, who just can't, you know, give over enough money to these con men fast enough. And if the government was actually doing its job and regulating this behavior, then we would not see people being taken advantage of and financially and otherwise, you know, raped um, by these groups and activities. It's, it's that bad. It really is. I mean, we know about mass, you know, sexual assaults and, and cover-ups and that kind of stuff too. So, you know, we see law enforcement falling down on the job here. We have a number of reasons for this. It would be nice if there was just one reason or a couple, you know, reasons why this was happening, or we could point to a couple different people and go bad guy, bad guy, bad guy, and fix it all. But unfortunately, the problem is much more systemic than that. Um, I'm not going to necessarily go into a whole diatribe here about, about how all that works. It's just to say that, you know, the, the law exists at the city, state, and national level, and different laws contradict one another, are, are, not, are enforced in different ways, in different jurisdictions, if they're enforced at all. There's prejudice and bias on the part of the people enforcing the laws there are gross um, lack of funding in certain areas uh, there's not you know in the IRS the people who who should be on the job to do this enforcement aren't even there I mean it's that bad you understand there's not even there's not even a person at the desk there's nobody driving the the the, the, the ship. Uh, when it comes to enforcement of tax exemption for cults, for religious groups, they're they're not even trying to get that job done. so so yes, our government is severely letting us down because the very basic mechanisms that we have in place to enforce um laws and compliance with these sort of things, it, it just isn't being done then you have uh, all of the bias and prejudice uh pro religion bias that we have here in the United States which is really out of hand it, it really is it, it is too much whether you're religious or not whether you know, regardless of what your beliefs are personally I, I don't really care that's not the point right your belief is your belief but there the the power and and an authority and ability of 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 certain religious groups and institutions in this country to manipulate laws to lobby our government to 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 influence unduly influence our legislators our law enforcement officials i mean we saw this in spotlight if you watch that movie you watch the influence of the catholic church on law enforcement and how how it's been a decades maybe even centuries long problem this is this is long term problems these are entrenched institutions. So turning these things over and and getting them to uh, comply with basic laws of decency and, and humanity and and not you know and not financially rapaciously ruin people because of these belief sets um, this is a lot a lot a lot of work you know people don't generally realize how, how hard it is to do this work and how many people we actually need doing it and how few there are who are even really even trying. Okay, so um, this is the problem with enforcement in the United States and probably in other countries as well, but certainly here. Um, we can talk about, you know, the rights end of this, how we have freedom of belief and freedom of speech and freedom to assemble and freedom of religion and all that. But those, those rights aren't really the problem when it comes to this. It's, it's that we, we, we have these rights. But we also have laws to sort of regulate the boundaries of how these rights are implemented, and a lot of those laws make a lot of sense. They're not all ridiculous, but they're just not being enforced. So, um, so yeah, you know, you are correct, Robert, to have some ire directed toward our government systems. And most of what I've been talking about has been referring to the federal level, but you also have city, state level laws and regulations as well that could be used to uh, inhibit or even shut down some of these activities, but nobody really even bothers to try. Um, so uh, so that's the problem here. And one thing I do want to point out is the funding problem. Because these groups, let's talk about like, you know, let's say Scientology, for example, because these groups are making tons and tons of money or have in the past made Tons and tons of money, and they have deep pockets, deep reserves. These groups are already set up to hire the lawyers, hire the private investigators, do all the things they need to do to protect themselves. And the people who are going after these groups me, Tony, Leah, Mike we're not funded like those, like Scientology is. Collectively speaking, We have, in terms of resources available to us, a tiny, tiny fraction of the money and resources that something like even a small group like the Church of Scientology has, much less the Catholic fucking church. I mean, we don't have any kind of ability to fight back on an equal footing against these groups. And this is why we need groups like the government at the city, state, and federal level to step in because this these are institutions these government institutions do have the resources to take the fight to these groups and and deal with them but they don't you know either like i said because they're not even not even on the job or their attention is dispersed all over the place or they don't have the funding to do the work that needs to get done Et cetera, et cetera, you see. So, so this is the, this is, these are big, huge problems. These are not small problems I'm talking about here. And this is why this problem persists and why we will continue to have cults, televangelism, other nonsense go on in this country forever um, because we don't put the things in place and give them the resources they need to get the job done to put these toxic groups down and that's, that's the reality of the situation, and that's why we will continue to be talking about this forever. And uh, yes, there's a little bitterness in my voice on that as well, but it is what it is, and so we just keep fighting the good fight and doing the best we can. Karen Horvath, can you explain how and why and when the cross, quote-unquote, was put up on Scientology buildings? Is this just a ploy to make the public think that Scientology is a real Christian religion? It seems obvious to me there is nothing religious about this organization. Thanks, Karen. Actually, I mean, to be truthful, there are religious things about Scientology, if you're really going to step back and look at it from a religious perspective. But... I get your point, because what you're talking about is religious cloaking, and that is really what Scientology is engaged in, if I'm really being, like, bluntly honest about this. Scientology's—I don't believe Scientology's religion either, but there are a whole lot of religious scholars who do, and that argument is a very serious and heated debate, uh, in the academic world at least. Uh, you guys don't hear about it a whole lot, but it's there. It happens. Now, as far as the public—and as far as your your question, though, Karen— um yeah Scientology utilizes religious symbology crosses the minister tab the you know the even wearing minister garb um the the crosses on the sides of the church the prayers the sunday services the you know the religious status we have all of that is cloaking it's hiding what Scientology is really all about, which is a money-making scam. That's what Scientology really is. It is a money-making scam, and it scams all of its followers as well as the public at large. But it is that's it's scammy as hell. So the religious symbology and the icons and all of that is just there to create a a, a facade of religious um, uh, legitimacy, and so. Uh, that's why they use it, and Hubbard adopted all of this way back, 1953, 1954 is when this really blew up. Uh, back in Phoenix, Arizona, is when Hubbard really got the Church of Scientology going, and um, and they used a cross. They actually the Rosicrucian cross is the cross they're using, um, and uh, but it's it's got all kinds of Christian value, and given the fact that about. 70, 75% of the United States is Christian or or claims to have Christian values, um, you're gonna have this symbology be very, you know, convincing to people. They're gonna see that and they're gonna instantly associate, oh, Scientology, cross, religion, okay, it's a religion. And it's just that fast and just that simple. That's how we, that's how we are, that's how we think. So um, you know, if if on the other hand, the majority of the United States. Was Jewish, then it's very possible that Scientology wouldn't use a cross. It would use a Star of David. <laughs> I mean, you know, they would, in other words, they're going to use the symbology that is going to get across to the most number of people easiest that they're a religion. And so Hubbard adopted in in 1950s America the cross. And that's why they have what they have. And they didn't come up with some other, you know, symbology. They use that one. So that's what I can say about that. All right, let's do some flash answers. MetaFan 012000. For Scientologists to go to Flag for several days of auditing services, are they required to stay at the Flag Base Hotel or can they find their own accommodations? As far as I know, they um, can find their own accommodations. I've never heard that it's absolutely required that you stay on base. However, with COVID, that could have been different because of the quarantine rules. They, where they've been quarantining people for two weeks before they can do flag services. And as far as I know, that's actually still going on. Um, so I think that they would probably regulate it more closely over the last year and a half. But um, but my knowledge is that they don't require that, but they heavily encourage it. Alex C. I must admit, I'm fascinated by Scientology songs like We Stand Tall and Dauntless Defiant Resolute by Chili EB. When listening to Dauntless, I'd almost feel like upping my status with the IAS if I didn't know any better. It's got such a positive tub-thumping vibe. Like, let's get up and make it go right, right now. How were these songs received in the Sea Org? Were they played at events? Curious for the internal take. Alex, thank you for this question. And quite honestly, Scientologists respond the exact same way you did. That's the point, right? They get professional musicians who understand how to use music to manipulate people. And they use that to their advantage to rile Scientologists up and get them all excited and energized so they'll open those wallets and fork over those Benjamins because that's what it's all about. Money-making scam. So, yeah, that's how they use those songs, and they they are very well received in the church. They love Scientologists, love Scientology songs, because the lyrics are Scientology-minded, and they communicate all the, you know, key loaded language words and everything, and they get to have all the camaraderie and all that, and unite around these funky beats about Scientology. And they just think that's awesome, right? Because it brings the— the things that make mainstream culture exciting and interesting, they bring it into the insular world of Scientology and they make Scientology feel and seem more normal, more usual, more exciting. And that's the whole point of that stuff. Travis, what's the best worst movie of the eighties in your opinion? I happen to like Aerobicide. Oh my God. Well, it just so happens that I have the bad movie Bible because there are so many bad movies from the 80s that it is damn near impossible to decide. I I mean, my first answers coming to mind were Jim Cotta, um, Ninja 3, The Domination. I mean, there were some real turkeys coming out of the 80s. But then you go into this book And you get questions like, who thought Superman 4 was a good idea? Uh, What happened to make Troll 2 the way it is? Where was Samurai Cop really found? When When should the Death Wish franchise have died? And why does Tommy Wiseau have a secret pocket in his underpants? amazing book very good and I would say that uh in terms of what I think the best worst movie of the 80s is I am um I guess I'm just gonna throw out Jim Cotta because that's the one that comes to mind right away but I uh, I will say that I think you'll find a fine selection of other worst movies uh, in the bad movie Bible or otherwise. And nobody's paying me to say that, by the way. I just pulled it off my shelf because I thought it was appropriate for this question. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for watching the show this week. I hope it was at least mildly entertaining for you and informative in some fashion with the answers I gave. I really want to thank everybody who's throwing questions my way. Please do get me your questions through uh, askchrisshelton at gmail.com Anything, Scientology or otherwise, I am more than happy to address. In fact, I would actually encourage non-Scientology-related questions, too, because I really like addressing real-world stuff on t- outside of Scientology, even other cult stuff, too, by the way. I'm more than happy to address or answer questions about other cults as much as I can. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to be able to speak too intelligently about Mormon underwear, but um, but in you know in terms of cult, more maybe more wide cult type questions or something that might be kind of fun too. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Thanks for coming around. Bye bye.